Um, all right, we are going to uh, dive into a brand new series this week that I'm so excited about. We're going to be going through the book of Revelation. And um, for some of you are like, okay, let, let's make a, you know, make, when nobody's looking, let's get out of here. And um, Revelation makes a lot of people nervous um, because, can I just tell you, can I be really honest with you? Um, churches are magnets for crazy people. You guys know that? Like, I'm not talking about you all, of course, right? But churches are magnets for crazy people. And, and it's really common for just crazy people to show up at church. And they always want to talk about Revelation, right? Well, I don't know, like, if the government hands out the book of Revelation to everybody that's crazy and makes them memorize it. But crazy people have the book of Revelation memorized. Like, they can quote it and, and they've added to it. I mean, they've, they've improved upon it and all kinds of stuff. And, and it is just, it, I mean... Like people love talking about revelation and the conspiracy theorists love revelation. And, and it, and so I think if you're, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to call myself a word that you may disagree with, but if you're normal like me, right, (laughs) if you're normal like me, uh, when, when people get up around you and they start, you know, you know, they go off on the revelation stuff, if you're like, Oh you know, you're looking for the exits. You're, you know, you're looking for that hidden firearm just in case something goes wrong. Uh, I mean, you're, ju- you're just like, okay, this could go wrong in all kinds of different ways. And so, um, and, and I think what has happened is that, and they're not all crazy people. There are very well-meaning people that have done this. Um, but the book of Revelation has been hijacked, I think, over the years and used for something that it should never have been meant to use for and that is, like I said, <coughs> conspiracy theories, um, uh, people who really enjoy like trying to pin down the exact time and way that, uh, you know, that Christ is going to return and the end of the world and the apocalypse and which we're going to talk about that word in just a second. But, um, and so like all my life, I, so if you've been in church for very long, you know, for, for uh, several years or whatever, and you've ever heard Revelation preached, chances are what you've heard is Revelation 1 through 3, and then the, like, the last two chapters, right? Because uh, those are like the uh, safe passages to kind of preach. And everything in the middle is just like, it comes across a little crazy, right? I mean, there's some wild, I mean, trucking dragons and a woman who can sit across two hills and there's bowls and lampstands and, and just, just all these different things that, uh, these beasts. And, and, and it's just like, Oh man, like I, like I, let's, can we just talk about what Jesus said? And, and I would feel so good about that. And so a lot of us tend to get afraid of revelation, except Colette. Colette loves revelation. She led a whole group on it and, and, uh, and she, she, she's, she's, she's good about that. And so, but it is for a lot of us, I remember having conversations with my mother-in-law who said, you know, I'll, I'll never do a study on revelation because it just leads to arguments and, you know, all, cause everybody's got all these different opinions, different beliefs about how, you know, things are going to wrap up in the end. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's just been mired in this controversy. And that is such tragedy because I feel like when you get a real good grip on the whole point of that book, um, if you've been avoiding it for very long, you are missing out on a huge portion of our faith, a huge portion of our faith, because it is, it is meant to be to us a book of, one of worship, a book of encouragement, 
uh, a book uh, to let us know who Jesus is and all, all this kind of stuff. It's meant to be something that is beneficial to our faith, not something that that should have been mired down in controversy all these years. And so if you're like me, you've kind of avoided Revelation. You read through your Bible or whatever else, and, and when you get to Revelation, you're like, okay, I'm going to skim, skim, skim through this. I, it's, it's kind of weird to me. I don't I really know. And so, and people have told me as a pastor, don't preach through Revelation. You cannot grow a church preaching through Revelation. And so I'm, I, I was like, challenge accepted, okay? And so... <laughs> Um, so we're going to do this and, and, uh, we're going to be in this book, uh, for, uh, I believe 13 weeks. It's going to take us all the way to Christmas. And, um, and so we're going to go through revelation. We're not just going to hit the, the bumper sticker verses. And it is, I promise you, my whole point in, in preaching this service is to, or in preaching this series is to pull this beautiful book out of the controversy and make it something that is a, uh, a vital living part of your faith. And, and so if, if Revelation, it, like me, like if, if it scares you a little bit, would you just do me a favor and give this a shot? And because and, uh, and, I, I, what I want to do is uncrazy this book. All right. Can we uncrazy Revelation? I think it's finally time we uncrazied Revelation because the rest of the book is not that crazy, right? And so it's, it's insane for us to be like, yeah, the Bible is a beautiful, practical book. Except when you get to Revelation, then it gets a little crazy. We're going to uncrazy this book because it's just as big. Of, and I would say even for us as when it comes to Revelation and, and we, here we are living in the, what we call the church age, the New Testament age. Revelation is our book. It's the book written for us in our time. And so for us not to know What's going on here? I think again, you're missing out on a huge chunk of your faith, and so let's uncrazy this book and just dig into it. And and so this is what I want you to do. And it's going to be hard for some of you. Now I, I don't I don't promise to to uh, preach uh, you know in a way that a hundred percent of you are going to agree with because it's just impossible. Um, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to kind of. I do this occasionally when I'm, when I pick up a, a new study, a new book, you know, if I'm like, okay, I'm going to dive into this book and I'm going to study it hard for a little bit. I try to push back everything I think I know about that book and look at it with fresh eyes again. Right. Because when I'm able to do that, oftentimes I discover things that all my presuppositions kept me from discovering in the past. And so this is what I want you to do for the next, you know, this fall. I want you to, uh, Take all the things you think you know about Revelation and just push it to the side. Just push it to the side for a little bit and look at this book with fresh eyes. Just look at it with fresh eyes. And, uh, and, and I think that we'll be able to uncrazy this book and make it something that's an actual encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord. Um, and so I'm excited about it. I'm really excited about this book. I've been praying about this series for about two years now. For about two years, I, God started laying this on my heart. I spent a good year and a half just reading everything I could find on, on, on this book and studying it hard. And, and I'm, I'm, ex- I'm, so I'm excited that it's finally here. I'm going to dive into it. So this is why we're going through revelation because I think it could be, and, and by the way, there's so much in this book that is so practical for the times that we're going through right now with this election season and all kinds of stuff. And so I think it's going to, you're going to find it very, very practical. So let me give you some Quick hi- before we dive in, some quick highlights about this book. For those of you who that are new to church or new to the book of Revelation, you don't know a lot about it, this is what you can do. So put up, put up that slide. 
There you go. All right, first of all, it's revelation. It's not revelations, okay? Just a little pet peeve. Um, and so, so just, just it's revelation. There's no S on there. All right? And then uh, it's written by uh, the apostle John uh, when he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. John was the, 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 the disciple of Jesus that lived the longest, okay? He uh, lived well up into his 80s and 90s. And, uh, and so about somewhere in the mid-90s A.D., uh, he was exiled for his faith on this island. It was kind of like a prison island, a little Greek island uh, there off the coast of Turkey. And, uh, and so he spent some time in there, a couple years on the Isle of Patmos. And God uh, gave him this, this uh, uh, vision, this revelation. That we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that word in a second. But uh, that's when it was written and, and where he was when it was written. Um, it was written to churches that were being persecuted by a world that was increasingly worshiping Caesar, okay? So these churches were being persecuted, and, and one of the main reasons that they were persecuted was because the fastest-growing religion in the world at that time was not Christianity, contrary to belief. The fastest-growing religion at that time was Caesar worship. It, it, Caesar had gone from a place of just being a presidential-type figure, a royal-type figure, to where he demanded worship. And so all... All, all these Roman cities that claimed allegiance to Rome began uh, building up temples to Caesar, and the worship of Caesar was just growing and growing and growing. And Caesar was constantly using words of himself like son of God, like um, uh, um, the bright and morning star, like all these things that a lot of times... Uh, that, 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 like Lord and things like that. And, and, and so much of the New Testament then was written in response to this increasing worship of Caesar saying, you guys think you know who the Son of God, but let me introduce you to the real Son of God. And so all these phrases that kept coming up and, and will continue to come up in this book of Revelation uh, were a direct response to the Caesar worship. Now, the literary style of this book, and it's very important, uh, if you think that the Bible is equal all the way across and it was written in the same style, it's not. The Bible is full of all kinds of different styles. It's, it's actually not a book. It's a library of books. And so in the Bible, there are books of history. There are books of worship, like the Psalm, Psalms, which is basically their song book. There are prophetic books. Uh, the Gospels uh, are, are kind of uh, uh, weird biographies of Jesus. They don't quite fall into biography. They don't quite fall into history. Uh, they're all a little bit of theology, too, and so we call them gospel. Uh, there are letters that, that people wrote to uh, other people and to other churches in the New Testament. And then there's this category of literature that we call apocalyptic. <coughs> apocalyptic. Now... You may be familiar with that term apocalyptic because of the word apocalypse. And this is a word that's also been hijacked over the years. And so right now when we hear that word apocalyptic and we think apocalypse, we tend to start thinking, you know, zombie invasion and, uh, or, or the end times and fire raining down from heaven. Just all kinds of crazy, you know, cats and dogs sleeping together and all kinds of crazy things happening, right? And we, we get these big visions of, of what's possibly going to happen. And, and that's a bit of a mistake because apocalyptic... Um, the word apocalypse, uh, apocalypsis, it's a Greek word, apocalypsis, it actually just simply means to reveal something hidden, which is why we translate that word uh, apocalypsis to revelation. It's the revealing of something that was hidden. And uh, what you need to know about this is that apocalyptic writings were very common. It was a very common and familiar type of literature to people back in that time. 
Revelation is not unique in its style. They were used to that style of writing. Many people over the centuries had written in apocalyptic style. And uh, in fact, Jesus in his teachings sometimes teaches in a kind of apocalyptic style. It was something that, an apocalyptic, since it's the revealing of something hidden, it, it uses a lot of symbolic language, a lot of uh, allegory and things like that. It also, in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of prophetic allusion, meaning that it's, they're, it's constantly calling back to other images that would be familiar to the Jewish people that other prophets had talked about and, and visions that they had had. And so there's a lot of crossover between the book of Revelation and some of the Old Testament prophets. It was a very common thing. So when we hear the term apocalyptic or apocalypse, I want you to take that that scary, that, uh, that idea of something scary out of your head because it was never meant, again, that's something that's kind of been hijacked in our times. It was never meant to be something scary. It was just a type of literature, just a type of literature. And so it's an apocalyptic, now very, very symbolic, very symbolic. We're going to look at some of the sim- symbolism in here, but uh, let, me, let me just throw this in uh, for free, that a lot of times people, when they read through the book of Revelation, I hear people say, well, I read it symbolic, and other people will say, no, I have a very literal translation of Revelation. And to that, I just want to say, uh, baloney, you don't, you don't read the, the book of Revelation literally. Nobody does. If you do, you're crazy. You're crazy. Because there's all this talk of, again, dragons and beasts and all this kind of stuff, and, and, and nobody is reading this. It is, it is so obviously symbolic in its, in its, now, now there, what, what the arguments tend to go down to is, is a handful of verses. Do you read these handful of verses literally or symbolically? That's really, but everybody reads revelation by and large symbolically because you're, again, you're just crazy if you're not, if you're not doing that. So, um, that said, uh, it, it is full of symbol, symbolisms. Now let's dive in. Let's dive in. Cause I, I know we're running out of time already. <laughs> um, we're going to hit revelation one this morning and it is powerful. It is powerful. It, it, it introduces uh, really the main theme of this whole book right off the bat. <laughs> right off the bat. All right, so Revelation 1, we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. All right, it says this. <clears throat> the revelation, or the Greek word there, the apocalypsis, revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now, this is the introduction to the book right out of the bat. It just kind of kind of sets up the framework of work of what we're talking about. Now, for those of you who are new, I'm not normally the guy who spends a lot of time. Uh, you know, diving deep into Greek words and stuff like that, unless it's really pertinent. And so, uh, so don't, don't think that the rest of this series is going to be a bunch of big, big Greek lessons because it's not, but I want to spend some time looking at about, about three Greek words that are in this passage, because uh, whenever you translate, uh, if you don't know the, the new Testament was written in Greek, it's translated, you know, several years, many years later into English. So whenever you translate from one language to another, a lot of time things get lost in translation. The, the, the classic example is the word love. You know, we have one word for love. I love my wife. I love a cheeseburger, right? And it's the same word. And and in Greek, there are, you know, three or four or five different words for love, and they, they can mean different types of love, right? So sometimes things kind of get lost in translation. 
So right out of the bat, it says that uh, to his servant, John, who bore witness, and the Greek word there is uh, imartyrison. Everybody say that with me if you can. Imartyrison. All right. So that, and that's the, the word that we translate into bore witness, uh, somebody who gave witness. It's also a word that we'll trans, uh, translate often in this book into testimony. Testify, testimony, witness. It's that same word right there. Um, it's important to get that because all throughout this book, there's this kind of law court language that is often used. It's almost like God is the judge of the whole universe, and, and he sets up this kind of uh, law court language all throughout this book. And that idea of witnessing or testifying in the, uh, in the New Testament, in the, in, the, in the Christian faith, to witness something, to testify to something, is almost always tied to suffering. It's almost always tied to suffering. The root word in that Greek word would be martyr. It's where we get our word martyr from, right? And, it, and that idea of, of being a testimony, a, a test, to testify or to be a witness to something that pertained to Jesus Christ, it's almost always tied to suffering. How do you testify to the goodness of Jesus Christ? By staying faithful to him even in times of suffering. And suffering is a major theme in this book that we're going to go through for the next several weeks. It's a major theme. And so don't lose sight of that idea of suffering, of suffering. The next word there, uh, if you go down a little further, is uh, the word blessed, which the Greek word there is makarios. Everybody say makarios. All right, so that, that word, that's the word that we translate into the word blessed. Now, when we think of blessings, we tend to think of uh, God giving us good things. I remember when uh, Molly was 10 or 11 years old, my daughter, she's a, a college student now, but when she was 10 or 11 years old and we gave her her first uh, cell phone and, um, and she had a friend uh, at the time, also a little 10, 10 or 11 year old little girl who, who was a pastor's daughter from a different church. And uh, I remember she was over at the house and Molly was showing her her cell phone and telling her that she could text message and things like this, you know. And, uh, and so this little girl looked at Jamie and she's just, just, just a sweet little angelic girl, right? And she's just like, Molly is so blessed to be able to text message. She just... <laughs> Just so blessed, right? Right. So we tend to think, we tend to hear that word blessing or being blessed, and we tend to think about good things. You know, a, a, a windfall of of uh, money, or uh, a new job, or a promotion, or a new house, or we, you know, we tend. To, I'm so blessed when these things happen. You know, a good family where things are seem to be going well, and a good marriage. These are blessings a lot, a lot of times that we think of, but that is not the biblical idea of blessing. That's not the biblical idea of blessing. That that word makarios, uh, it literally means happy. But not just happy in the sense that we think of happiness. It's happiness that transcends worry or labor or even death. In other words, it's a happiness, it's a joy that transcends whatever circumstances that we're going through. So if you're going through a period of time, a time of suffering, which according to scriptures... Uh, if you're a Christian, you will. It's not if you suffer, it's when you suffer. Suffering, again, major, major thing, not only in this book, throughout the rest of the Old Testament as well. And we tend to skim over that because we don't like to think about suffering. But the biblical idea here of blessedness is, look at the way uh, Jesus is, when, you know, uh, Matthew chapter 5, when he's talking through the Beatitudes, and he's like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are, you know, it's all these things that, that we tend to think of. Well, that doesn't seem like very, a very blessed person if they're going through all that. But in Jesus' idea, 
if you are able to go through that stuff and remain faithful and maintain your joy and rise above your circumstances, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. So again, very much tied into the concept of uh, suffer. So those who suffer for Christ to the confusion of the rest of the world, we're able to rise above uh, our circumstances and see joy. This is one of the most peculiar things about the Christian people. And so again, this idea of blessing, this idea of, uh, of, uh, of uh, bearing witness and things like that, very much tied into suffering. The last word there, uh, it says, and, and who keep, you know, blessed are they who hear and who keep what is written. The word uh, that we translate into keep is the Greek word terouuntes. Everybody say terouuntes. All right, again, it's just a Greek word. And, and what the idea here, it, it, when, by keeping this uh, prophecy, this book, this revelation, by keeping it, which we're instructed to do, it's not like the idea of, oh, I've been given this beautiful book and I'm going to keep it. I'm going to put it up on the shelf here and it's mine and I have it and I own it, you know, that sort of thing. It's not, that's not the idea of keep here. That word, the, the, the idea it's trying to get across is this idea of uh, when you're keeping it, you're observing it like you would observe a holiday or you're obeying it, you're submitting to it, right? there. That the idea of obedience is built into this word. And so for those who not just hear it, not just study it, not just memorize, but those who obey it, for people who will obey it, uh, there's blessing there. There's blessing there. And so the thing you need to know about Revelation, because there's a lot of people in the world who study Revelation, Revelation is not meant to be a book just studied. It's meant to be a book lived, lived, obeyed. Everybody's got opinions about Revelation. But how many people have you met that are living out Revelation? Like really submitting themselves to this book and obeying it. So the first big point I want to make today is this. Don't simply believe Revelation. Live Revelation. Don't simply believe this book. Live it. Okay, and again, you can approach this book as kind of, uh, I'm going to try to figure out the end times. I'm going to try to figure out, you know, if uh, Obama's the Antichrist. I'm going to try to figure out, you know, whatever. You can, you can, you can approach it that way. Uh, but, but I think that's a huge mistake. It's not a book simply to be believed and studied. It's a book to be lived. It's a book to be lived. So, Revelation, uh, moving on, verse 4. It says this. John, <coughs> pardon me, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. We're going to talk more about these seven churches in the next two weeks. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. There's that word witnessed again, Jesus being faithful because of his suffering, right? That witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, now I want to back up. And so, so he, he says to, to uh, uh, peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come. This is a reference to the member of the Trinity that we refer to as God the Father. From the seven spirits, this is a reference to the, to the Holy Spirit. We say, well, why seven spirits? Uh, again, here's the symbolic language coming in. Seven uh, in, in ancient times was a, a, a number often used for the idea of completeness, uh, wholeness, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a reference. So, so you have numbers that occasionally come into this book that, that don't necessarily mean 
mean literal what you know a figure of or a number. They mean something different. For instance, in, in uh, I believe it's Psalm 50, when the Bible talks about uh, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's not saying that somebody went and counted all the hills and came up with a number of thousand. That God, and the, the idea is that God owns it all. It, he owns it all. It's, it's, it's all of it. It's a complete number, that sort of thing. So, as we move on. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's a good preacher who says amen and just keeps going. Um, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail. And the word there, the wail kind of means mourn. Will wail or mourn on account of him. Even so. Amen. Even so. And then he says this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So as, 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 as John is telling us who he's getting this, this uh, apocalypsis from, this revelation from, he's saying this is from God. It's from God the Father. It's from the Holy Spirit. It's from Jesus Christ. And what you need to know about this book is that this book is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And I say, you say, well, isn't the whole Bible all about Jesus? Yes, but I think we need to emphasize this point about this book in particular because we have made it a book as, with Jesus as the secondary figure and all the scariness as the primary figure. And what you need to know is this book is all about Jesus. It is primarily about Jesus. It is not primarily about the end times. Not at all. It is not primarily about the end times. It's about who Jesus is right now. Right now in our lives. It, it gives us a... Di- we're going we're to read here in just a second. A different picture of Jesus than we read about in the Gospels. Because Jesus, when he ascended and he, he left this world, he ascended. Uh, he, he ascended in this glorified state that's going to exp- express Jesus to us in this glorified state. It's who Jesus is to us right now. It's who we are in him right now. It says a lot about who we are and what we need to, how we need to be living, how we need to be obeying him in the words of this book. It's who we are in him right now. And it's the hope that we have in him right now. It's the hope that we have. All of our hope is fixed in and, and, and through him and what he has done for us. And we have this hope. Some would call it a living hope. We have this hope in him because of who he is now. And to get a picture of who Jesus is, and that's, it's, it's important to know who Jesus was when he walked here on earth and he taught. It's important to figure out who that Jesus was. But the Bible also gives us a lot of clues as to who Jesus is right now. And this is what Revelation tells us a lot about. Reading Revelation only for, to, you know, to, to try to figure out the end times is a huge exercise in missing the point. It's a huge exercise in missing the point. Again, we have, that we've, we've taken this book and we've made it controversial and we have hijacked its primary purpose. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put it back in its proper place. Now, are there some clues as to what the end times are going to look like? And, and, and I even hate using that word end times, but it, uh, as to what the consummation of God's kingdom will look like, what it's going to look like when God sets everything right, when all things are made new. Yes, there's a lot of 
Uh, are there some in, in this book about that? But it's not primarily a book about that. Now, the last part of this chapter says this. Start with verse 9. <clears throat> I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Now, let me stop right there. Hit this word tribulation. This is not the kind of tribulation that you've heard is going to come. This is just John saying, I partner with you in the sufferings that you're going through right now. Right? So it's not, again, tribulation, not a big scary word. John saying, I'm with you in your sufferings. I know you're suffering. I partner with you in that suffering. I get it. I get what you're going through. So I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. There's that word again, testimony. In other words, I was there because I'm I'm suffering for the cause of Christ. I'm suffering because I spoke up. I'm suffering because I would not be silent about my Savior. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So he's sending this letter out to these seven churches. Most likely these are churches that John as apostle, apostle kind of was the overseer of. He kind of, um, some might call it a bishop or whatever. He, he, he looked after these churches. And, and just so just so you know, if you look at these churches on a map, these, these cities, these seven cities, it would be, they would follow a route in which a letter carrier would follow around in a loop. Uh, to deliver all these letters. They're arranged in that way. We're going to talk more about these in the next two weeks. We're going to kind of gloss over that this week. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Here we go. This is where it gets good. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, That's what Jesus always say when we fall before him afraid. Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are, uh, that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now we're going to focus on those, those stars and lampstands in the next couple of weeks. And so I'm not going to hit that today. What I want to focus on uh, for this week is the description that we get here of Jesus. It's a little bit like if we were to draw this, if somebody was to paint this painting of the way Jesus is described here of, his, of, of uh, you know, this long robe and this gold sash and white hair and white beard eyes like fire and feet like bronze uh, refined in fire and a voice with the sound of many waters like waterfalls or ocean waves or whatever. If you were to try to paint that image, that's a different image than we read about in the gospels, right? That's a whole different image. It's a little bit uh, intimidating. It's a little bit uh, scary for some of us to think of Jesus in those terms, but this is the glorified 
Jesus. And again, he's using these terms. He's describing, John is describing everything that he's seeing. And he's using these terms to describe to us who Jesus is right now. Right now. So he uses this term. uh, The the point I want to make is this. Go ahead and put up that point. It's this. That Jesus rules victoriously with wisdom, justice, strength, truth, and glory. That's our Jesus right now. He rules with just, so first of all, Jesus rules. This is the image of him with a, a long robe and a white sash. It's kingly garments. Jesus is our, we live in this kingdom that he has established for us. And he is our king. He is our leader. We submit to him. He is our ruler. He rules victoriously. It talks about uh, that he has the, the keys to uh, death in Hades. Now, now, a lot of times when we hear the word Hades, we think of hell. That's not what's being talked about here. The word Hades just literally means the abode of the dead. And what this is talking about, <laughs> it's not anything freaky necessarily. It's just Jesus saying, I went there. I died. I owned that place. I owned it. I was victorious over it. Death has nothing on me. Wherever you go when you die has nothing on me. I conquered. I came. I saw. I conquered. He rules victoriously. He rules with wisdom. This is the image of the white hair and the white beard. It's the kind of that typical image that we have a lot of times when we think of somebody maybe who's wise or, or a prophet or whatever. It's, that's the whiteness in the hair. He rules also with justice. He's got these eyes of fire, the, these eyes that seem to pierce through you that can quickly delineate between right and wrong. He's a just God. He's a just king. He rules with strength, the idea of the bronze feet, refined, strengthened by fire. He's a strong king. He rules with truth. He's got this voice like many waters. You ever get around the ocean when the waves are coming in strong and it just, it just fills your head or close to a huge waterfall and you have to shout at the person next to you? This voice like many waters that just seems to pierce through, like, like hit you in your chest when you hear something that big and then it just makes you feel so small. And Jesus is saying, saying everything else in your life is inconsequential. I am the truth of your life. I am the truth of your life. And he rules with glory. His face shining like the sun, glorified. Now, when you look back at this, he's the ruler. He's victorious. He's got wisdom. He's just. He he rules with strength and with truth and with, with glory. These are all things that Caesar would have been saying about himself too. And Jesus is like, no. He's just a cheap copy. He's just a cheap copy. I'm the real emperor. I'm the real king of your life. We are all part of this kingdom together and I'm the one that's the real deal. So we tend to kind of look to our human leaders for our salvation. You know, we, you, you fall into a couple of, when, you know, as we're, we've got an election approaching or whatever, we fall into a couple of different camps. Either you think that you know, uh, Donald Trump's going to be the savior of the nation, or you think that Hillary Clinton's going to be the savior of the nation, or you think that there's no way either one of them can do it and we're saviorless for this nation or, you know, whatever, whatever whichever, uh, you know, kind of ground you stand on there. But what you need to know is that we are not called to be a people as Christ followers. We're not called to be a people who put our hope for salvation in other people. That's not who we are. 
that we have a king. And we are citizens of a kingdom. And this king is the real deal. He's the real deal. He rules as only he is able to rule. He rules in strength. When when the world around us seems unjust and unfair, he defines justice. He defines it. He is the real deal. And when you break that down, you make, let's take that in closer to just us as individuals. Like all those qualities that, that we just described in Jesus. Can, can we all be honest? I'll be honest for us all, okay? I, I'm not that guy. Like I wish I was. I wish I could say I was strong and wise and, and glorious. <laughs> Although this hair, pretty good. <laughs> I wish I could say all those things about myself, but I'm not that guy. I'm just not. And so when it comes to me trying to move forward in a good way in my life, at the end of the day, I'm completely incapable of that. I don't have it in me to make the right choice every single time. I don't have it within me to always be strong and never be weak. I don't have it within me to treat everyone around me with justly, with justice. Those things, I, I, may, I may experience glimpses of them, but I, I can't be that 100% of the time. I need a king, a savior in my life who is that for me. And you need that too. You can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. But when we submit to our one and only king, he steps up for us and he takes his perfection and he replaces it with our imperfection. And even though we're imperfect, we get to lean into his perfection and we get to, we we get to take advantage of the fact that we'll get welcomed into relationship with God and into this kingdom of righteousness, not based on our qualities, but based on his qualities. He's our good savior. Jesus Christ. I want to invite the the worship team up here right now. Jesus Christ is mighty. He's mighty to save. He's mighty to save us. Now, as we dive into this series for the next several weeks, this is one thing I know about every single person in this room. Every one of us needs a savior. Every single one of us are in in huge need of a savior in our life because we are powerless to save ourselves. And what this book is about is about, it's about the fact that we have that savior that is everything that we need. And while we may look into the future and to our lives right here in the present and have loads of confusion and uncertainty and anxiety and everything else, that Jesus has already written the entire story of this universe. And he's not anxious about any of it. He's not anxious about any of it. And so let's put our faith and our trust and our hope in him. Not in ourselves, not in other leaders, not in our you know, how much money is in our checking account or not in the, our job stability. Let's put our faith and our trust and our hope in Jesus because he's the only one that won't let us down. Everything else will crumble. Everything else will go away.
but Jesus is mighty to save us. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to close out the service today and we're going to sing that song, Mighty to Save. I love the song. And would you just take all this that, that we've talked about this morning and that you've just kind of been absorbing and just take it and respond to that and let's collectively just cry out, yes, yes and amen. Jesus is mighty to save. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for your good word to us. We thank you that you are this savior. You're not some sort of um, weak, ineffective leader, God, but that you rule us with strength and with power and with justice and everything else there, God. You're a good God. You're a good, a good savior. We love you and we praise you this, this morning. Save us. Be the savior that we need. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody stand.